The ley line was raw, uncontrollable, inexplicable energy. The stuff of legends. Chapter 18, page 175, The Raven Voice. Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Navita. And, and we're, we're the, the Raven, Raven Girls. Girls. Welcome to our Raven Cycle podcast. Where we talk about four dysfunctional teenagers. Is, OMG, what is that creepy voice coming out of my half it? Quick, kick over the candle. <laughs> this is episode six, and we're covering chapters 16 to 18 of The Raven Boys. We will also be taking our deep dive on scrying. Disclaimers. This is an analysis podcast. We'll be discussing the Raven Cycle as a cycle. This means we are spoilerific, so you'll probably want to have read the books before you listen. Yes, please. We'll use pronunciations from the audiobooks, and page numbers are referenced from paperback editions where available. And a disclaimer from me, this podcast has a teen plus rating, and basically I swear and drink. That's pretty much where we're going to go with that one. <laughs> All right, let's get going on the episode. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll do a character introduction this time on Neve because both of us were sort of like, hey, have we ever covered Neve before? Yeah, I I think we kept pushing her forward and this seems like a really good place to talk about her. So this would be a good set of chapters to actually go into Neve, although we've kind of already covered a lot of this stuff with Neve, so... Mm -hmm. Neve is Blue's half-aunt. She showed up sometime in early spring. Blue had never met Neve before she showed up in Henrietta this time. And Neve is a, quote, famous psychic in that she does have a TV show and she's written four books. Mm -hmm. Later, we learn that she's ambitious and doesn't think that having a TV show and four books is good enough. Mm -hmm. That there are other psychics that are more famous that she... She wants that level of... She wants to be more like, (laughs) although she kind of hedges it with the language of, no, I want to be respected. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not about fame. It's about respect, which well, in her, know, they're equated. Of, yes, I, I feel exactly. like she's equating the two. So, yeah. Anything else? No, I guess like we don't really get a whole lot of physical description other than that. She seems to be like conventionally attractive. She is described as chubby. Oh, I, that's true. Yeah. She's rounder and chubbier, softer, uh, softer and has... Her bl- hands Her yeah. hands are <laughs> described thing, as really pretty. Yes. Her <laughs> hands are constantly described as oddly lovely is one of the phrases. <laughs> and I do remember in Blue Lily, Lily Blue, Piper, or maybe it was actually the Raven King, Piper being just awestruck about the fact that Neve's hands are still perfect and she's been in a cave for months. <laughs> So, okay, getting into the analysis, chapter 16. It's a Gansey POV chapter. Gansey is woken in the middle of the night by a god-awful racket that turns out to be a hungry and adorable baby chainsaw. He and Ronan bicker about the noise. Gansey stares down a wasp and Ronan shows his jealous streak. So this chapter does happen the same night of the reading. Mm -hmm. And as we said, Gansey is woken in the middle of the night again. 
And I'm like, Maggie does realize that a full night's sleep is possible, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the true secret is that all the weird supernatural stuff is actually just sleep deprivation. Right. Because They're hallucinating sleeps. everything. <laughs> yes. Anyway, what wakes Gansy up is a weird noise, which he describes as one of his roommates being killed by a possum, or possibly the final moments of a fatal cat fight. He wasn't sure of the specifics, but he was sure death was involved. Which, okay, it goes <laughs> from he wasn't certain of the specifics straight to Noah standing in the doorway. <laughs> Death was involved. Noah stood in the doorway like a dead boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Noah, his face pathetic and long-suffering. Make it stop! <laughs> yeah, Noah, you don't sleep, buddy. Like, just chill That doesn't mean that it isn't annoying. <laughs> you can go elsewhere. You can go anywhere you want to, bud. Mm. Like... Take off. And so Gansey realizes that the noise is coming from Ronan's room. Mm-hmm. And he goes to see what's up. He mentions that Ronan's room was sacred and he was violating this twice in a week. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, do we get a third? And I don't think we do. You know, and I did not have time to look for this. Possibly he does go into Ronan's room when they realize that Adam has disappeared from Monmouth at the end. uh But I didn't actually look it up and I can't remember off the top of my head. So I don't remember. I just thought it was an interesting connection because like there's so many threes. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And then he walks in and Ronan's sitting there in his boxers. Ronan had gotten his tattoo six months before, which places it right around the suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. And do you think it was before or after? And I just feel like it's probably a physical manifestation or sort of representation of his pain. I want to say that it would be after. I yeah. feel like that's, that, I feel that's so what it feels too. like to me. And there's just a really good turn of phrase, claustrophobic lamplight. That is a good turn just, of phrase. I just really yeah, love like those that. together. And Renan's tattoo is described as intricate. It covered most of his back and snaked up his neck. It was more real than anything else in the room. Mm -hmm. It was both vicious and lovely. And every time Gansey saw it, he saw something different in the pattern. Mm -hmm. Nestled in a glen of wicked, beautiful flowers was a beak where before he'd seen a scythe. I'd actually seen you talking about this online earlier. Is Mm -hmm. is the tattoo real or dreamed? It's like he says he paid for it, but it always changes. Everybody always sees something different in it. I actually come down on the side of it being both real and dreamed Mm -hmm. that he did actually get a tattoo, that he actually wanted the pain. Uh He needed that kind of external Mm -hmm. physical representation of the pain that he was going through. And I feel like he probably dreamed up the design to give Mm -hmm. to the tattoo artist. But I also kind of think possibly that some sections may be dreamed into his skin. Yeah. Or that just by virtue of it possibly being a dream design that it could change based on the eye of the the beholder. So, yeah, I feel like there's some inherent magicness reflected Mm -hmm. in that, but... Just coming from his own magicness. Right, right. Mm. And I love... What fresh hell is this? Said Gansey pleasantly, (laughs) which is basically Gansey in a nutshell. It really is. (laughs) And Gansey notes the music wailed, which is an indication that it's not electronica, as mentioned later. Right, because electronica booms. It doesn't wail. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't wail. Well, yeah. (laughs) Irish music wails. Yes, yeah. 
And then Ronan says, I thought we were clear on what a closed door meant. And Gansey replies, I thought we were clear that night was her sleeping. Well, perhaps for you. Mm-hmm. Well, your pterodactyl woke me up. And I'm just like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pterodactyl is a good description of baby birds. Uh-huh. But I'm all like, the pedantic in me is like, no. Birds are dinosaurs, but raptors, not pterodactyls. Different family. <laughs> God. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and there is something really endearing about Ronan feeding Chainsaw. What is probably likely mashed up mealworms yeah, in a sack. <laughs> with a pair of tweezers. And that mm. cracks me up. And then Maggie had done a Q&A with a bunch of different little questions. And one of the questions was about how realistic the sections with Baby Chainsaw were. Mm. And she said, I read a lot of bird rehab memoirs and obsessed over it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like Maggie. A lot of bird Maggie has your memoirs. heart. <laughs> I know. Jeez. And then it talks about how Chainsaw inspired both Gansey's compassion and his gag reflex. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, oh baby, baby Chainsaw. Chainsaw. <laughs> well, this is not going to do. So formal and dad-like, says Gansey. Mm-hmm. And then, oh God, this line makes me just want to... <laughs> This time, it sounded a lot like vacuuming potato salad. (laughs) This is the worst slash most effective phrase. And it prompts my gag reflex. Uh, I'm like, oh. So Gansey describes Baby Chainsaw as bite-sized and improbable, extremely cute or appallingly ugly. And it bothered him that it managed to be both. And I'm like, that is such an apt description of baby birds. And it's like exactly why I love them. No, baby birds are so ugly. I used to raise doves and they are just hideous small creatures. (laughs) And then Noah mentions that Chainsaw reminds him of something. And then Mm. he just kind of like trails off before he says what it it was. Yeah. And he loops through time. So I'm actually wondering if he's reminded of Chainsaw, Mm. possibly Chainsaw later. But then he says, I don't like that thing in here it reminds me of and right. i'm wondering if he's reminded of the, the night, night horrors yeah, that possibly. That's come a good later idea. but nobody knows and then ronan correcting gansey when he just calls chainsaw bird yeah <laughs> yeah it's like there's such an old married oh couple. yeah <laughs> and then i had written down he's so protective of his bird's identity <laughs> like when he corrected gansey <laughs> on her gender he's like She's a girl and her name's Chainsaw. Aww. You will address her by her proper pronouns and identity markers, all right? <laughs> and then Gansey's watching Ronan with Chainsaw and Gansey realizes this is not the Ronan he'd become accustomed to, but it's not the old Ronan either. Gansey sees this Ronan, fragile bird in hand, as a compromise. And Chainsaw is so much Ronan's heart. I love her for it. How she just represents Ronan's emotions laid bare. Right. The line about the compromise definitely makes me tear up because Mm -hmm. Gansey has lived with Ronan through this grief. Right. And he realizes he'll never get the old Ronan back completely. Right. Because you don't in that. You never do. And you see Chainsaw softening Ronan already. He's even listening to Celtic music, Uh which his father's music. Gansey says he hasn't seen him listen to that for a long. She immediately. Yeah. Like from the very first moment you see Chainsaw. She's she's softening she, it. Yeah. And the instrument wailing from the headphones was the Irish pipes. 
Mm-hmm. And I'd really like to post a video of Maggie playing the pipes. Yeah, I think we should. And I'm wondering why Ronan calls Gainsey's question about Kala a very Declan question. Right. Like, is it just because Gainsey's prying? Like, he feels like Declan does? Or I've never understood why Ronan calls it a Declan question. Uh-huh. It just it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to Gansey. It feels like he is trying to deflect. Right. And well, he absolutely is. Yeah. But... And the phrase, his voice was pitchless and naked. Mm-hmm. He's so raw here and he's shaken. Right. And there's a river of feeling underneath Ronan that just little phrases like this one expose. Right. And Gansey knows this is all a diversion. Mm-hmm. And both Gansey and Ronan know that Kala was not full of shit. Right. But Ronan literally can't talk about this right now. Right. This is the very thing he has He's, promised he won't talk about. Yes. Mm, and it says he's and, making him think about things that he doesn't want to think about. He's in a lot of pain. Yeah, he is. She said it because she knew it would cause problems. And it's like, no, Ronan, she said it because you demanded it. Mm, and absolutely. she didn't know what she was going to see when she touched you. And sure, she could have been a lot more sensitive in her response but that's like asking Ronan to be more sensitive. Right. They're just not sensitive people. And <laughs> when they are sensitive, it seems to sort of happen very obliquely. Mm-hmm. He got what he asked for. He absolutely did. Mm-hmm. Be careful what you wish for. Mm-hmm. They move on to a different diversion. <laughs> yes. The argument about Gansey's beard. Oh, my and God. It just cracks me up. Oh, my God. I literally laughed for five minutes. And I mean, I was looking at the clock going, oh, my God, I'm still <laughs> laughing about this. When I read this line this last time to do the analysis and the Paul Bunyan bit, because I'm like, the 14th century when Paul Bunyan was alive. <laughs> It's like, no, it's not the 14th century, you dip. (laughs) I'm I'm just not going to... Whoo, you guys. Uh, And the fact that they're picking up from like an off-page beard-related conversation just makes it even funnier. It's like, what do you guys talk about? I I mean, I was never never a 15, 16-year-old boy, so I don't know. But... (laughs) But like the whole thing about like it filtering the potatoes out of your like, potatoes, <laughs> like it'll come in like a rug with your balls. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. Oh, oh my god, you guys, we have to move on. <laughs> such, like they're oh, such man. old maids. You were saying maybe she's this literally is... crying. I was crying. Like, I was crying last night. Oh, my God. And you said possibly this is like a take a drink. Uh, yeah. Because it mentions, I like, think I'm just going to drink just because. Okay. Right. Uh, and then Gansey's like, my beard will never come in. I'm deemed to be a man child. And I'm like, ouch. ouch. <laughs> yeah. My comment was kind of. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> both, and, both and neither. And then, I can't believe you just skipped over the best part of this whole <laughs> chapter, which is Ronan pretending he has never noticed if Gansey has leg hairs. <laughs> like, please, dude. <laughs> Don't even try to deny it. We know you know whether Gansey has leg hair. And then I love the fact that we actually get leg hair confirmation <laughs> in the Raven King and the Toga oh party. My Maggie does not let this drop. <laughs> the leg hair is brought back. Oh my gosh. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. We've got stuff. Oh, uh, my gosh. We've got actual stuff to talk about. Here. Right, right. I can't <laughs> just laugh about. Oh, okay. All right. And then Gansey's like, <laughs> they're talking about letting Chainsaw stay up in Monmouth. Mm-hmm. Gansey says, you so owe me, Lynch. And Ronan's whatever. Mm-hmm. He has this very effective dismissiveness that comes up several times in the books. And it really always right. makes me laugh. But then Gansey heads back and he doesn't even get in bed. His whole thought process about how he won't be able to go to sleep, uh-huh. how he wants his journal, should he call Mallory... This paragraph really brings forward how much the phone calls with Blue settle him later. Absolutely. Like, it really does change him when he talks to her at night. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very similar thing of Renan and Adam Mm -hmm. and Gansey and Blue. And the settling. Yes. How they settle each other. And I think that it's a nice move from the man-child comment Mm -hmm. where you're just like, Mm -hmm. ouch. To Gansey thinking that something inside him felt like the night, hungry and wanting and black. And he thought about the dark eye holes of the skeletal knight on the death card. And then you go directly to the wasp. Right. Yes, it does really flow well from death to the wasp. Mm -hmm. And if this was the same night that the following chapter was in, Uh I would almost think maybe he's feeling the demon coming through with Neve. They are not the same night, though. Not Mm. to say that he's not feeling the demon, but that there's no direct correlation in timing. Right. I also wanted to say that in episode two, I had pointed out that there's kind of a throwaway line about a fly buzzing overhead. And at that time, I did wonder if it was the wasp that shows up in this chapter. It could be. And that's on page 48 in The Raven Boys. Mm -hmm. And then he also thinks about Chekhov's EpiPen, which (laughs) that's what I called it in episode one. Mm-hmm. which is all the way out in the glove compartment. And right. I'm just like, why doesn't he keep it on him? Or, you know, it's a good idea to have one in your car, but yeah. you would have one in the house. Too. Yeah. And you should just keep it on you at all times. Mm-hmm. And then does he really think that it would be too late to use, even if he's stung now? And I was having a really hard time remembering kind of some of the timeline of this because I just recently re-listened to Blue Lily, Lily Blue and the Raven uh-huh. King. So I'm all kind of muddled. But I believe this is the first time he's specifically says that he is allergic to bees and indicates that he died. Right. I think this may be the very... Yeah. We get allusions to it early. We get the EpiPen, but he just says an EpiPen. Right. He doesn't say my EpiPen. Mm -hmm. You weren't really paying attention then and putting the two together. This might be the first time that there's any indication that Gansey has this wasp or bee allergy. Right. And so Gansey tries to make himself believe that what he's hearing isn't a wasp and he can't, which like makes me think he's having so many PTSD attacks that he's hearing them even when they aren't there. But yeah, so he gets up the check and he sees the wasp and he just stands there staring at it. Right. There was another little line that I really loved. The shadow of the telescope was an elegant monster. It's a really nice line. Beautiful. And everything is creepy and distorted. That might also be playing into his perception or uh-huh. his perception could be making them creepy and distorted. And shadows also come up in Blue's chapter mm, Yeah, later. it's a nice parallel. Right. And the description of the wasp, he's zeroed in on this wasp. It's basically the only thing that he sees right now. The uh-huh. faint shadow of its legs, its curved body, the fine, insubstantial point of the stinger. And this is a precursor to the description of the demon in Absolutely. the Raven King. Gansey's allergy making it a deadly weapon. 
Remember that Gansey suspects already that he's going to die. Right. So he's staring at this thing. And he, he really believes. He really like, thinks yeah, that yeah. he's going to die. Long ago, his skin had crawled with hornets, their wings beating even when his heart didn't. Uh-huh. That's a, yeah, <sighs> so beautiful. a really good line. His throat felt tight and full. And again, symptoms of anaphylaxis. You can't breathe. Mm, and PTSD mm, flashbacks PTSD. or a panic attack. Yeah. Probably a combination. All of, of them. Mm, <laughs> yes. Because yeah. like... Because yeah. the PTSD is making him remember the way that that felt yes. to not be able to breathe. Uh-huh. Right. And then Ronan, who is like always action, always the one mm-hmm. who's doing things. He walks in on this, on Gansey just staring at the wasp. And in one swift movement, he's across the room and snatches the shoe out of Gansey's hand and kills the wasp. Right. Yeah. Ronan panics. There were three footsteps very close together. Mm-hmm. It was just a three. With how hard he hit it, he should have broken a window pane. Uh-huh. And then Ronan yells at Gansey, what the heck were you doing just standing there? And Gansey doesn't know how to express how it felt to stare death in the face. Right. And I'm like, yeah, but if anyone he knows would understand. Right. Yeah. Although I don't, Gansey hasn't yet known what's going on with Ronan. That's true. And he thinks that Ronan is courting death, which is different than having death come at him. But Gansey is definitely frozen with a panic attack, but Ronan doesn't recognize it right. as such. But Ronan is so careful with handling the wasp body, stuffing it down. It falls out. He pushes right. it back in. He does not want it to no, get... No, he doesn't want Gansey to be touching it at all. And it shows his depth of feeling and concern. Mm-hmm. But I also feel he's stalling for time because Gansey, he's like gathering his own thoughts after his panic. And Mm -hmm. Gansey asks, why did you come out here? And he says, well, I basically forgot. But then Uh what's this about you and Parrish leaving? He won't even look at Gansey. He doesn't want to see rejection in Gansey. He doesn't want to acknowledge that he, again, is raw and vulnerable Mm -hmm. after the reading. And Gansey thinks to himself that he couldn't lie to Ronan. What is there to lie about? I just don't understand why he would even think that. It's not like he had said that it's just going to be him and Adam. Or right. Like, yeah. I don't get it. Me neither. So, like, we just said, Renan finally admits that Noah told him that if Gansey leaves, Gansey wants Adam to go with him. Shouldn't Gansey at least wonder how Noah knew? Yeah, this is a huge, huge question for me. Because maybe he assumes Adam talked to Noah. But when would there have been time? And when did Noah tell Ronan? Yeah. And this is the same night that it all happened. Uh-huh. Like, it happened that afternoon. Nobody, no time. Nobody's questioning how Noah knows about this private conversation that right. happened at Adam's house. Right. It's so weird. And then there's jealousy in Ronan's voice. But I feel like it's for Adam and not for Gansey, even if he doesn't realize it at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's like, Ronan isn't going to leave the barns, and he doesn't want... I mean, he doesn't want Gansey to go either, but right. but he definitely doesn't want Adam to go. Yeah, Gansey has thoughts in Blue Lily Lily Blue that jealousy had ruined Ronan for the first several months after Adam's introduction into their group. So I think more than anything, Ronan is dealing with an intense fear of abandonment here because he's just had this traumatic event recalled. Right. And his family is dissolved. Gansey is the only person other than Matthew that is still a stable force in his life. Right. And without Gansey and, you know, by extension, Adam. Right. 
Ronan has no one. No, he right doesn't. Now. And his fear is articulated when instead of saying something sarcastic to deflect the situation, he actually asks something very vulnerable with, do you not want me to come? <laughs> yeah. It's like, ah, tears. Mm. Like, so sad. And yet, Gamzee thinks that his friends wouldn't want to be with him. Right. It's, these guys, these guys. Mm-hmm. They're all so broken. Oh, my gosh. And thus ends today's dissertation entitled, All My Feels About Ronan Lynch. <laughs> You have a lot of those dissertations. I have a lot of those. (laughs) But this is today's dissertation. Yes, absolutely. So Gainsey thinks that this is all about him. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, I don't play favorites. And he's like, I take you all with me. And I'm like, none of them can actually leave. Yeah. I mean, they could. Gansey could potentially pick them up and take them away, but mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense. He is so used to being able to pick himself up and leave. Uh-huh. And as established later with Mallory, he just bailed. He mm. just bailed on Mallory, right. who was like his best friend as a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. Just left. And this is the first time he's got people that he feels like he can't just leave. Right. Yeah, it's like, okay, so Ronan's not leaving the barns. Mm-hmm. Adam doesn't want to leave school. Right. And Noah is a ghost. Right, well, there's that. <laughs> Gansey doesn't play favorites. Is also his excuse for hiding his relationship with Blue, too. Uh-huh. Which, by the way, both Ronan and Adam pick up on far, far, far before it's admitted. Oh, yeah, they know. Yeah. Ronan did his smokers inhale, which in actuality could be a conscious attempt at breathing to control anxiety. Right. The like in through the nose, out through the mouth. Uh-huh. And Ronan starts, the other night there's something. And Ronan almost tells Gansey about pulling out chainsaw. Right. And Gansey thinks it was a full stop that Gansey associated with secrets, which it's Ronan's first secret. Uh-huh. And then Ronan feels that something's starting, weird stuff. And he mentions Chainsaw, mm-hmm. which I think shouldn't be weird to him because, like, you know, dreaming. He's pulled living things out of his dreams before. He doesn't know. He does not yet know that he pulled Matthew out. He's told that later. Oh, I thought he knew that. Mm-mm. He okay. doesn't find out that Matthew's his until later. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. He mentions Kala, which, mm-hmm. yeah, okay that would be right and he mentions noah and i'm like what yeah Yeah. like what does he think is weird about noah at this point maybe he just thinks noah's being creepy Uh Mm uh-huh and then blue and i'm like what's weird about blue right and then the recording and i'm like yeah true that yeah (laughs) and all of these are magic like all caps magic Uh and I don't know how he knows about some of them and yes they don't make sense on this list right now Uh every single one of them makes sense right but maybe his connection to the ley line or caves water gives him this feeling maybe but they are all caps magic and I thought it was really interesting to note Adam is not on this list Adam is not yet magic that's a good point yeah I noticed that yeah and then he mentions things feel bigger and it's starting, man. And like, this is such a theme. Like, right. we see this over and over again. Adam says it. Gansey says it. Now Ronan is saying uh-huh. it. Gansey is looking at the insect body in the garbage can and he reflects dark black wing of the dead wasp. And again, it's that death, like the demon possibly uh-huh. coming through. And then Ronan says, if I catch you staring at a wasp again, though, I'm going to let it kill you. Screw that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, it's so Ronan. Ronan really feels sad and broken to me when he says this, though. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels hurt. It uh-huh. feels really hurt. 
Noah had drifted from his room, and it's very ethereal again. So He's so flippin' ghosty. Yeah. <laughs> Something about Noah's uneasy face reminded Gansey of the frightened faces surrounding him. Hornets on his skin, the sky blue as death above him. This line is so important. Uh Noah's face was literally there when he died, both times, whispering to him about Glendower. And the little phrase, sky blue as death, blue, Uh blue kills him, Mm -hmm. blue causes his second death, blue as capital D death. Yeah. (laughs) Oh. That line. Yeah. And then he goes, a long, long time ago, he'd been given another chance. And lately, the weight of needing to make it matter felt heavier. And he was given another chance by Noah, the person standing in front of him. I cannot all caps this enough. (laughs) And then just a quick note that he mentions the aching presence of the nearby mountains. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes it aches from the other side of the country. They're pretty awesome. Yeah, excruciating as the imagined sleeping countenance of Glendower. Mm -hmm. And then Noah said, don't throw it away. And this line really makes no sense until the second read through. This line is the line, which is more all caps, that Mm -hmm. made me reread these books. That is Mm -hmm. it. That is the one. (laughs) Just because like... Well, because it's what Noah tells Gansey when he's dying the first time. uh But you do not see the full speech until the Raven King. Right. He says, you will live because someone on the ley line is dying. You will live because of Glendower. Don't Mm. throw it away. Right. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, (gasps) (laughs) Noah said that in the Raven, boys. Oh, my God. I have to reread these books. (laughs) that was it that was the line yeah and so before we get into the next chapter we're going to go ahead and take our deep dive on scrying right and so here's what i know about scrying it's a fifth level spell available to bards clerics warlocks and wizards (laughs) casting time is 10 minutes it requires a wisdom save modified by familiarity to the target a secondhand knowledge is a plus five difficulty and if you have a body part like hair and nail clippings or something like that it's a minus 10 difficulty and it requires a focus for at least a thousand gold points, such as a crystal ball or a silver mirror or a font filled with holy water. Okay, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Nerd. <laughs> nerd. I am such a nerd. You knew this. The I never funny, The funny thing is that when I did the Google search on scrying, this came up and That's I was... why. That's why I immediately like it was like four it was like fourth. I know. I saw the same thing. I was like, D&D. I was like, four like, supernatural websites, and then the D&D spell definition. And I'm like, yeah, I've got to do this. Yeah. yeah so scrying <laughs> is the act of looking into appropriate mediums in hopes of seeing messages or visions. Mm-hmm. The most common types of materials used for scrying are reflective refractive translucent or luminescent surfaces or objects like crystals or stones or glass in various shapes like a crystal ball or a mirror reflective black surfaces like obsidian or water surfaces fire or smoke Mm. another source i found added wax clouds oil and eyes like looking into someone's eyes to this list 
So a little bit of the history of scrying. Mm-hmm. It's an ancient practice. Very so it was ancient. known, yeah, it was known as a practice in ancient China, biblical Egypt, Greece, and the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. The oracle at Delphi could easily be attributed to scrying, possibly in conjunction with psychoactive herbs, mm-hmm. smoke, or gases. Mm-hmm. Royalty and statesmen throughout the ages have relied on information gathered from practitioners of scrying. Nostradamus and John Dee mm-hmm. being two very, very prominent ones to greater or lesser effect. Right. And Nostradamus, Nostradamus and John Dee are both very fascinating characters. Yes, they are. John Dee was <laughs> one of the advisors to Queen Elizabeth yes, I. Absolutely. One of the most recent famous psychics to give predictions purportedly gathered through scrying was, and I'm not sure that I'm saying this correctly, but Jean Genet, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, Dixon, mm-hmm. who had a syndicated newspaper paper column and was consulted by the likes of Nancy Reagan, who seemed to have a fondness for psychics. Mm-hmm. However, the fact that the media promoted her few predictions that could be interpreted as coming to pass, while seemingly uh-huh. forgetting about the many more that did not, led a mathematician, John Allen Paulos, to coin the term the Gene Dixon right. effect. And that's how people who make predictions work. You, do so many yeah. that invariably you're going you, to you, get... Your brain, we're hardwired to register hits and forget about failures. Mm-hmm. I have a kind of list of different types of scrying and how they work. And this came from a website, lonerwolf.com slash scrying, yeah. which we'll have a link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. There's wax and you drip the wax onto a water surface. Mm-hmm. You could probably drip it onto like any surface and then right. and then you interpret the images or words formed by the dried wax. Right. And then there's cloud gazing, observing clouds and the shapes that they form. Like everybody does this. Right. And mm-hmm. then mirrors, which are a really common form of scrying. Right. It's also called catoptromancy. Mm-hmm. And it involves relaxing your vision and staring into a mirror. And after a while, images and scenes will start to emerge. Right. And there are also special rooms that can be set up called psychomantiums. <laughs> and they were originally created to help people connect with the spirits of the dead. Mm-hmm. And they're basically a dark place with a chair and a light source and a mirror. Yeah. That's super scientific. Mm-hmm. It's right. a great word, though. It is a great word. I like it. Psychomantium. Uh-huh. I might have to steal that for something. And then water scrying mm-hmm. is staring into water and then images can be perceived after a time. Or basically, liquid. Yeah. yeah. Objects such as pebbles can also be dropped into the water to create ripples. And then the ripples are interpreted. Mm-hmm. can use oil for scrying. This involves pouring oil into a dish or rubbing it on the body or coating a copper plate. And then the scryer observes the light reflected off the oil for the messages that they're looking for. And that was popular in Egypt, at least cited most often in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And fire, which is possibly one of the most ancient forms of scrying, mm-hmm. uh, it involves gazing into flames like a right. candle flame or, right. or a bonfire. Yeah. The website was like, yeah, this can be done through the use of a simple candle or an oil lamp and bonus points if it's a bonfire fire sure smoke which is as the smoke rises from fire the ethereal shapes present spiritual messages right it's basically the same kind of thing as like cloud all Mm. of these yeah they're Mm -hmm. all the same Mm -hmm. crystal which is the stereotypical form of scrying and involves the use of a crystal object like a ball or a globe to gather your your visions yeah and a crystal ball again fun word 
I'm not even sure how to say this. A crystal ball is called an orbuculum. Uh-huh. Orbuculum. Orbuculum, Orbuculum. <laughs> it's just ridiculous to say. It is. Orbuculum. Orbuculum. Uh-huh. I have no idea. Then there's the last one on person's list is I. And it's also called soul gazing. This form of scrying involves looking deep within a person's eyes and observing the reflections. And I'm like, I think this person has been reading too much Dresden Files. <laughs> yeah. Just the whole like the soul gaze and Dresden Files where you just see. I don't remember that. So. Like, <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I've read it, but it's been a long time. Yeah. So. you If you have magic, you can gaze into a person's eyes and you see their inner soul. Like you see their. Of course you do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. The three I'm most familiar with are liquid, fire and mirror. Uh-huh. And a mirror specifically created for scrying is often just a piece of glass that's been painted black on the back right? instead of silver. So you see kind of more muted reflections. You're not actually seeing like reflections of things. Right. When I was doing research, I saw that mentioned quite a few times. Yeah. And I personally use a chunk of Labradorite, Mm -hmm. which has just gorgeous colors and patterns and is highly reflective. Mm. And basically scrying is much like interpreting the patterns in Rorschach blotches. Absolutely. Even if two people had the exact same experience, they're likely going to see different things. Uh-huh. And if you were to do this practice, it's best to create a personal dictionary of symbolism because what you see, much like the flashes that Adam receives when he scries later in the books, they'll be up for interpretation by the beholder. Right. From the same website we were talking about earlier, there are instructions for water scrying. You fill a dark bowl with water and you place the bowl in a dark area and you light candles and you set them so they reflect off the water's surface. Mm-hmm. And then you enter a trance-like state like meditation or right. just relaxation and you gaze into the water. And I was like, yeah, more like you guys pass the water. Yeah, you're, yeah. Unf- you're sort of unfocusing your mm-hmm. eyes. You're not really seeing what's there. And that reminds me very much of what we see in the next chapter we're going to talk right, about. Right, right. And descriptions of what people see when they're scrying kind of remind me of the Bloody Mary game somewhat. Which it could have very well been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you stare into a reflective surface in a dark room, mm-hmm. it can definitely play tricks on your eyes. Right. This has been called the strange face illusion or the mm-hmm. dissociative identity effect. And the brain's facial recognition system just malfunctions. And we don't know exactly what causes that yet. Right. It causes your reflection to look off. There are descriptions of people seeing the face in the mirror it was melted and... <laughs> Yeah. It can also be partly due to the Troxler effect, Mm -hmm. which is an optical illusion that occurs when you stare at a fixed point for a long time, and then the surrounding, unmoving stimuli will fade out. Hmm. It also seems very related to pareidolia or apophenia. Absolutely. Pareidolia is the tendency to perceive a specific, often meaningful image in a random or ambiguous visual pattern. Uh It's like the man in the moon seeing a face in something or Jesus and toast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Same thing. And apophenia is the tendency to perceive a connection or meaningful pattern between unrelated or random things, objects or ideas. Uh And that could be where you're like in the clouds, you're interpreting these pareidolias and assigning a meaning to them that would then be significant when you're doing the scrying. And then I just wanted to mention one of my absolute favorite fictional instances of what could be interpreted as scrying is Mm -hmm. seen in The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart. Okay. And it's the first book of her Arthurian saga and it was published in 1970. It follows the story of Merlin throughout his life starting as a very young child and without giving too much away he finds himself crawling into the titular crystal cave and having a series of visions that will inevitably 
steer the course of his life. Hmm. And I highly recommend the whole series. And I can say it's had a significant impact on my interests, including the Raven Cycle. (laughs) So let's move on to chapter 17, which is a blue point of view chapter. Mm hmm. Blue wakes in the middle of the night, still mulling over the events of the reading with the boys, and she takes a walk outside to clear her head and finds Neves crying under the beech tree. Mm-hmm. Spooky times ensue as she hears an unnamed entity speaking through Neve. Blue breaks the ritual and finds out more about the ley line. Blue is still replaying the reading in her mind several days later, and I'm like, I feel you, hon. <laughs> I think we've I all do done that. Yeah. yeah. All the time. Yeah, several days later, time has passed and she continues to think about Adam and Gansey. And okay, fine. Now you can be upset Adam didn't call. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A great phrase, cluttered with jagged shadows as Blue's getting up out of her room. It's just Steve Otter, master of evocative language. Yes. And she is replaying Kala's volatile response to Ronan. And as evidenced by last chapter, the volatile response went both ways. Absolutely. Blue is still pissed that Mara actually gave her a rule. Mm-hmm. And it says it pinched like a collar. Right. And I'm just like, yeah. Mine was definitely like a rules-filled household. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. My mom said that she realized at about age two that I would not do well with rules. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, pretty much. (laughs) Blue has a grudging fondness for the weird architecture of Foxway. Is a half-hearted affection born of nostalgia. It's totally how I feel about the house I grew up in. Mm -hmm. Her feelings for the yard behind the house were anything but mixed. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I love it when Blue waxes poetic about her tree. Right. (laughs) Her backyard is so much more what she feels like as home than even the house itself. Right. Blue had a satchel full of memories. And I just think this is gorgeous, specific, and it's a call out to something she can take with her when she leaves. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. And she mentions that standing under the beech tree, it felt like she was the beech. Like the rain rolled off her leaves and off the bark, smooth as skin against her own. And I'm like, oh, my little sapperling. Aww. <laughs> and is this the first time we see Blue with the beech tree? Mm-hmm. I think it is. It is the first time we see her really connect. Mm-hmm. If it is, it's like meeting Noah for the first time. We are told right up front what Blue is when she approaches the tree. Yeah, it's true. Everything about this scene when she walks out into the yard is eerie and dark. And it's also the first real tension and horror we get in the books, in my opinion. Uh huh. It, it kind of is. It changes that scope of what the books are going to entail. Does. And so outside, she finds Neve at the base of the tree, and Neve is giving a blanker than blank stare. Blue mentions her formless eyebrows, and that's the part that really creeps her out the most. Mm-hmm. Scrying seems to be partially like astral projection in this series. It really does. The body. Blue's worried that Neve might be having a seizure mm-hmm. or something other medically related, but then quickly realizes she's probably just interrupting a ritual. Right. And she thinks about how Mora didn't do rituals. Right. And she'd snapped at a customer one time that she's not a witch, 
but then says sadly to Persephone that she's not a witch. And I'm like, what's her definition of witch and why isn't she one? Yeah. And I do have an answer for that. It's not as deep as a deep dive, but I did want to get into it because I do think it's really interesting. Uh-huh. The difference between psychics and witches. And there is one if you're in the sort of magical practitioner realm. Uh-huh. And anyone who practices positive visualizations, affirmations, the art of attraction, the secret, or for that matter, prayer could be considered to be performing magic as it all could be said to work on the same basic principle, which is magic is the art of affecting the manifest through the unmanifest. So you are asking for something to come to you and have it actually happen in your life. Right. Or as Aleister Crowley defined it, magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. So Mm. you will something to happen, you bring forth the energy to make it happen and it manifests. Yes. Psychics are by their nature reactive or passive. Mm -hmm. Psychics pick up on ethereal emanations, but they do not affect change in their worlds. And this really is exemplified by Mora because she has a hands-off approach to Gansey's fate. She sees it but she does not attempt to change it Mm. whereas witches are by their nature proactive Witches harness ethereal emanations through their will, focus them onto a desired outcome, and then they manifest that outcome. Mm-hmm. Psychics aren't really psychic if they affect what... You could be both. And that's true. But the difference is that you're taking energy and you are creating it based on intention into a desired mm-hmm. result, which is not what a psychic would do. Right. Witches have a concrete effect on their internal and external world, similar to what we were talking about with the Philosopher's Stone kind of remaking themselves. Mm -hmm. And Neve performing rituals or technically, I mean, their spells to create fame for herself later is definitely a manner of witchcraft. And interestingly enough, the most powerful witch in the books is likely Ronan. Hmm. Because as the Grey Warren, since he directly is creating physical manifestations by shaping Henrietta's magical energy, the ley line, Mm -hmm. through his dreams or intentions. He absolutely is, yeah. And Adam, as imbued with Caveswater's gift later, manifests outward changes through his focus and will. Mm -hmm. Gansey's abilities, too, stem from his focus and sense of command. Uh But Gansey borrows the actual energy from blue blue as a mirror may learn to be a witch later if she begins to harness that energy right running through her and focuses them through her own willpower but as it is in the series they're working in conjunction Uh to focus and provide energy Mm -hmm. and manifest right Mm -hmm. and this actually really makes sense because maggie has said that ronan's magic in the series is the oldest meaning Mm -hmm. that it was what she came up with first Ah, it was first to be developed and codified in her noggin uh-huh. and all other magic in the series looks to Ronan's dreaming abilities for their rules. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Sidebar. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, I can answer this we question. A, we get a mini deep dive. <laughs> mini deep dive on the difference between psychics and witches. <laughs> so Neve asks, 
who's there in a voice that is not hers? And Blue says there's something deeper and further away in the voice. Mm-hmm. And she's immediately spooked. And yeah, right. I would be too. This is the first time that I get any indication of the demon. Uh-huh. The demon is speaking through Neve, possibly. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm guessing. She's tapped into the space where the demon is. Yeah. And then in the tree above, a bird hissed. At least Blue thought it was a bird. Uh-huh. I don't know. It's just so creepy to me. And then the water moved in the roots of the tree. Either she herself is scrying here. Like she's actually not seeing something physically move, but uh-huh. she is picking right. up on it like visions. Or something is starting to come through the water as she seems to later indicate. Right. Blue notices that there's a pentagram around the tree. Mm-hmm. It's a candle, dark water, an unlit candle, mm-hmm. an empty bowl, and then Neve is the fifth point. Right. And it's the same setup as the climax. Right. In page 386 of The Raven Boys, mm-hmm. she explains that to Welk. In a voice that sounded like dark places, not Neve said, I can smell you. Okay, pro tip. <laughs> when something says it can smell you, you leave. Yes, you do. Because this is the creepiest serial killer line <laughs> ever. That is so gross. <laughs> so Blue didn't want to leave Neve behind if something had her. Well, it did. Yeah. It definitely oh. did. And it's interesting that Blue gives Neve's name. Mm-hmm. Maybe she figures Neve's already dealing with this thing, so it can't hurt. Yeah, I don't know why. The water was reflecting colors that were not in the candle. They shifted and moved in a pattern completely unlike the movement of the flame. Mm-hmm. Again, something could be in the pool, but she's also describing the exact practice of scrying. Uh-huh. When asked to come into the light and show herself, Blue says, I'm invisible. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, she may very well have been being the mirror that she is. Mm-hmm, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And the candle flame reaching for Blue is so flipping creepy. Yes. <laughs> like, fire can be so spooky. Right. And then Blue the- asks for a name of the thing that's speaking through Neve. And it says Neve. And I'm like, the yeah. demon knows she's lying. Yes. It knows she's lying. And it says something crafty now in the dark voice, knowing and malicious. Uh-huh. And I just want to give a call out because Will Patton does such an amazing job in this scene. Uh-huh. It's so good. Right. Blue wants to look away, but she's afraid the flame would touch her if she turned away. That feeling of like living fire, just yeah. like, oh God. Mm. And then she asks where it is, mm-hmm. and, and it replies, it's on the corpse road. Yeah, on the corpse road, like the demon that I thought totally came out of nowhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, this is about the only direct foreshadowing that we get of the demon that I can think of, other than some of the tarot cards that are pulled later, yeah. Like the devil. Mm-hmm. And I'm really hoping that I'll pick up on more clues this time around. Right. But it very much seems to be dropped into the story, unlike some of the other elements. Yeah, like the demon is the one thing that I've always felt doesn't doesn't seem to gel mm-hmm. with the story. Mm-hmm. Both Blue and Neve can see their breath and it's right. actually a rather warm spring night. I get the feeling that it is. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, do demons and ghosts do similar things to temperature? Yes, there's a line earlier in the book where it just talks about spirits manifesting needing energy. Mm-hmm. The energy is being sucked from Blue the environment and that would make it very cold and the demon would need energy to manifest like everything else and she notes that it's like something physical was rising from the water so blue gets even more freaked out and sees a Mm. chance to break the circle and so she does 
that could have really backfired. It could have. Yeah, if you believe the sources that I've read, because if you break the circle before you dismiss whatever right. you've summoned, you lose control of it. <laughs> yes, agreed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Blue says there was a minute of complete blackness, and it didn't feel like the tree or the yard was in Henrietta anymore. Were they transported to the demon's gate? Or into the nothingness that's the demon's center, the unmaking. Oh, yeah. And Blue did not feel alone, and it was a terrible feeling. Oh, no yeah. shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be a terrible feeling. Absolutely. So Blue tries to throw up the protections that Mora taught her, but they felt like nothing at all against the voice that had come out of need. And this is the first time we see her use her visualization uh-huh. technique, correct? And they've mentioned it before, but... right. But then there was nothing. She cut it off. Her goosebumps disappear. Light leeches back to the right. world. And so she, as soon as she puts that shield up, boom, it's over. Right. And Blue knows things are back to normal when Neve's eyebrows have expression again. And Neve's first response is to ask Blue not to tell Mora. And I'm like, yeah, yeah right. That is the first thing that I would do. Right. I'm 100% with Blue on this one. Yeah, yeah. Why shouldn't Mora know? Does Neve realize what a dangerous thing she was doing in oh, her backyard? I, I think she does. Uh, yeah. I also agree with Blue that this was not, mm-hmm. at least not on the same level, the same thing she was doing in the kitchen with the juice. Right. Neve admits she was trying to make contact with something in that weird space to learn more about it. And I'm like, well, she totally did. Yeah. And why would she even think that someone was in that space? I know. What gave her that indication? Well, I mean, she was called to look for Artemis, but Mm, eh. yeah, I don't know. Mm, And then she has the audacity to blame Blue for what happened. Mm. Blue is rightfully pissed off at this because it's like Neve knew that Blue was in the house. Right, right. Why wouldn't she take those precautions she was thinking about just to be on the safe side? Because it's Blue's house. Right, She can go where she wants to in it. Right. And, you know, so none of this is Blue's fault. Yeah, I agree. It's not Blue's fault. Neve's also somewhat correct. It probably wouldn't have happened without Blue's presence and Mm -hmm. she should have done it elsewhere or anticipated blue being there right but she seems continually surprised by blue's abilities and continually yeah. underestimates them she does and what would neve have done if she had thought blue was around to make the ritual different that's a good question mm. because i i don't i don't know yeah. we don't see that and then i noted that neve stops mid-sentence here right. when she sees the candle stub does she realize upon seeing like how far the candles burned down how Possibly, long the yeah. demon actually had her yeah, that's a good thought. Mm-hmm. Blue saving Neve from the demon here parallels her saving her parents later. Right. Mm-hmm. And then Blue finds out here that the corpse road equals ley line. Mm-hmm. I, I know you have a yeah, thing to say about this right, in a second. But right. I get the feeling that she didn't know exactly what Gansey was asking about. Mm-hmm. All this time, I thought she was just taking her clues from the adults. And I should have known my Blue better than that. Right. And I <laughs> interpret this differently because Blue was stunned in Chapter 15 because she thought Mora was the most truthful person around. Right. When she lies to Gansey about knowing about the ley line. Uh-huh. And the quote is, it was obvious he meant the corpse road. Right. And I'd forgotten about that mm-hmm. quote. And that's on page 152. Mm-hmm. So Blue does know the corpse road and the ley line are one and the same. Right. However, here it sounds like Blue is using me for confirmation of its location. Right. And Blue also at this point gets confirmation that that is why it's easy to be psychic in Henrietta, which she had pieced together in earlier chapters. Uh-huh. And here is where Neve says everything that needs energy to stay alive 
an editor's note, undead, <laughs> craves it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then Neve also says that something down there knows Blue's name. And I'm like, Artemis? That's my guess, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, something knows Neve's name now, too. And I'm wondering right. if that could could have played a part in Neve's eventual yeah, fate. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Neve also says that someone else is looking for the same thing that Blue is looking for. Right. And I'm like, well, Welk, obviously. Right. I wish. So someone else who is looking for this thing you're looking for, I really, really wish Blue would have put two and two together. Uh-huh. It would have totally negated the rest of the book. <laughs> but she was just at the reading where Persephone told Welk that he was looking for something uh-huh. as the Knight of Pentacles. And Callus said he'd be willing to do whatever it takes to find it. Right. And you would think that she would have remembered that because it was a very important Important reading. thing. And then Blue states there was nothing she was looking for, which I say... She has said over and over she's she, looking for something more. Yes. So there is something you're looking for, Blue. Mm-hmm. And she recalled that feeling of connection or feeling tied up in this web of raven boys and sleeping kings and ley lines of her mother saying, stay away from them. Mm-hmm. I'm Good just line. like, yeah. And Neve says, everything is so much clearer now. What is everything? Mm-hmm. And Blue says, you haven't said what was in that pool. And Neve gives Blue her unnerving stare. Uh-huh. Does she actually get clarity from the demon? Is she continuing to be possessed? And that would definitely explain some things in Neve's It future. could be a very similar thing to what happens to Adam. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's made some sort of bargain with it by inviting it into her. Right. Yeah. All right. And with that, we will move on to chapter 18, Welk's POV. Our favorite shitbird decides to break into Gansey's locker early one school morning. He discovers Gansey's notebooks filled with information about the ley line and surprising to Welk a connection to the mythological, historical sleeping king Glendower and the information that whoever wakes Glendower gets a favor. Welk again sees the search for the ley line and Glendower as an escape from his current life and a path to power. Mm-hmm. The first line, Welk took the liberty of going through Gansey's locker before school the next day. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I feel like that just totally captures Welk. Right. Just, yeah, I'm just going to do this because I can. Right. He has no moral. No, like, absolutely. literally no morals with Welk. And he's just totally like, yeah, this mm-hmm. is fine. Yeah. I'm wondering why Gainsey's locker is one of the few that's in use. Is this because he's one of the few people who lives off campus? Nope. It's because he's a nerd. <laughs> nerd. All right. It's probably because he lives off campus. So Gainsey's locker is just a few doors down from Welk's old one. And that's another parallel between Welk and what the Raven boys could have been. Yes, very much so. A rush of memory and nostalgia. Welk in this chapter is very much trapped in the past. Absolutely. And cannot force himself to move on. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, this had been him. And the once upon a time immediately Mm -hmm. makes me think of Mm him. With whichever friends he wanted, he says, yet he picked Noah. Mm -hmm. Why? Other than that they were roommates. Mm -hmm. But I really just don't think that Welk was as popular as he thinks he was. I don't think he was either. I don't think he was as cool as he thinks Uh he was. Welk really seems to lie to himself and have a filter on his past through this whole chapter that doesn't ring true to me at all. He also says he could get whichever Henrietta girls could catch his eye, including Noah's girlfriend, like a super creep. Uh And his father had no compunction making an extra donation to help Welk pass a class he failed to attend. Mm -hmm. Compare. This is exactly what Dad Gansey does for Ryan. Absolutely. Ugh. Yuck. 
And so Gansy, gross. Gansy hates himself so for it, too. gross. Yeah. And then Welk is like, and now Gansy was a king here and didn't even know how to use it. I'm like, neither did you. Look where you yeah, are now. Yeah, You had all these. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, he had all these, but I don't believe mm-hmm. any of it. Yeah, he had all these, like, ups and, like, all yeah. these things. Mm-mm. Working for him. And yeah. He, yeah. I think the drinking game for the Raven King will be every time someone is referred to as a prince or a king. You will die of alcohol poisoning here. <laughs> this may be true. <laughs> and then, because of the honor code, there were no locks on the lockers. And I'm like, yeah, that just means that, like, yeah, you're just going to get absolutely no privacy. Yes. Several dusty, spiral-bound notebooks with only a few pages used in each. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, Blue still has Gansy's journal. Right, because that's I, the important one. Right, though I suppose he wouldn't have left that at school anyway, considering his current level separation of separation anxiety. anxiety. <laughs> you just read my note on that. I'm sorry. It's, no, it's fine. <laughs> I'm glad you thought it was funny. <laughs> and I also had a side thought. If the journal is an OCD coping mechanism. It could be. Yeah. Because I'm I'm pretty sure that Gansy is OCD. Oh, he's got so many, so many things. So Welk takes the notebooks to a staff bathroom and sits on the floor to read them. I'm like, ew. I mean, at least it's unused. It's fine. Actually, bathrooms are usually the cleanest place in a building. So <laughs> because they get disinfected at least once a day, you That's guys. True. It just feels gross, though. Uh, Welk says that Gansey was more obsessed with the ley line than Welk had ever been. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's why he finds it when you didn't. Mm-hmm. Because Gansey is working towards something and right, you won't work right. towards things. Gansey's research process seemed frantic. Again, indicator of anxiety. Uh-huh. And Persephone mentioned it was taking him forever. Right. I'm like, why? What is the trigger for... I have come up with some theories. They're better suited for later. But yeah, this is a continual question that we keep bringing up. Why, 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 why? Mm -hmm. And then Walk thinks to himself, what is wrong with this kid? And then immediately feels strange that he'd grown old enough to think of Gansey as a kid. And I can totally relate because I'm still mentally in my early to mid-20s until I hang out with somebody that age. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and odd too because Gansey is older than Welk in some fundamental ways but Welk demonstrates again that he is trapped in his own past. Right, he 100% is. Mm -hmm. So the next notebook that Welk looks at is all about Glendower Mm -hmm. and Welk almost ignores it and I'm like how dense do you have to be like over and over again Glendower keeps coming up and then he finally realizes what Gansy's saying about the connection. To be fair this is literally the reaction I get from everyone I try to explain the books to because nobody in their right mind would connect a dead Welsh king to Virginia. Hence Maggie is not in her right mind. (laughs) So Buck focused on one line. Whoever wakes Glendower is granted a favor. Limitless? Supernatural? Some sources say reciprocal? What does that mean? What does that mean? It's a good question. I have no idea. And I'm like, of course Welk is interested now that it can benefit him again. And Welk says he and Cherney hadn't initially cared about the search. It had just been a puzzle. And do we ever really see how Welk learned about the ley line in the first place? I don't think we do. We don't. So Welk and Cherney accidentally knocked a stone out of place on the ley line once, and the resulting sizzle of energy had knocked them both off their feet and created a faint apparition of what looked like a woman. Who is that? I don't know. I have the same question. 
question. And the only thing I can think is all times being the same on the ley line. Mm -hmm. I was thinking maybe Neve. Possibly. Trapped in nothingness for a little while. Because we don't know what happens. We never find out where she was between disappearing in Cave's Water and then Mm -hmm. reappearing at the end of Blue Lily Lily Blue. Mm -hmm. And Persephone Persephone disappears too. Into the mirror. (sighs) Yeah, I guess her soul technically could have disappeared into the mirror. Yeah, I don't, I, mean, I have no, I mean, I it could just be random person. I think it makes more sense. And it could literally just be random apparition. Mm-hmm. The ley line was raw, uncontrollable, inexplicable energy. The stuff of legends. It's great. Yeah, mm. I like that quote. And then whoever controlled the ley line would be more than rich. Something the other Aguami boys could only aspire to. I'm like, is he thinking about this now? Or yes. is this something that he thought earlier? No, because again. Because now, it's ew. Yeah, again, he's stuck in this repetitive mental loop that he's still an Aguami uh-huh. boy. He stopped it's been at 17. like over half a decade, dude. Yes, and he stopped at 17, and he has not moved on. Exactly. He says that Cherny was the most ambitionless creature he had ever seen. But then he thinks that this is because Cherny had never had a problem being no better than the other Aglumi boys. That doesn't make him not ambitious. That makes him a decent person. Yeah, it also highlights Welk being a narcissist. Uh Because he wouldn't want to hang out with someone who challenged him. Yeah, that's true. And some of what Welk remembers of Noah seems like it could be true, Uh all things considered. Because, I mean, Noah doesn't necessarily seem like he was the most ambitious person in the world. But all things considered, Noah does not seem to see past the veneer or recognize Welk's darkness. Right. And there is a line later when Noah says he didn't expect to have to be afraid of Welk. Right. Welk told himself that Cherny was a sheep, but sometimes he slipped and remembered him as loyal instead. And I'm Ugh. like, he was, you jerk. Yeah. Noah is totally loyal. How deep into his own illusions is Welk right now? Like, because 110%? Yes. He's lying to justify his actions in killing Noah. Like, Noah's disposable. Mm-hmm. And then he thinks they didn't have to be different things. It's like, yes, they are. Mm-hmm. <sighs> mm. And then he wondered what Gansey, strange, desperate Gansey, was thinking he'd ask for as a favor. It's better than anything you'd ask. And also, who are you calling strange and desperate? Yeah. Oh, definitely. (laughs) The funny thing is that Gansey is going to ask for the life of the person you killed, you asshole. Uh Uh-huh. But... There is a good question. What does Gansey want at this point? Because we're not given any indication that Gansey actually has a plan for the favor. I don't think he does. Until they discover that Noah's dead. Mm-hmm. Adam has plans for the favor, uh-huh. but Gansey doesn't. Right. And then Welk says if he found him, he'd ask for what he'd always wanted all along, to control the ley line. And I'm like, is that really what he wanted? Because that's not what he said a few chapters ago. And then also I point out that this is basically what the gangsy actually ends up doing. Without killing someone? Yes. Yes, Exactly. Well, I guess technically they kill Welk. (laughs) What does Welk think the ley line will actually do for him? Mm -hmm. I mean, is this ever answered? No. He thinks it will make him rich again. But how? Like, what is the actual mechanism? That's what I can't put my finger on with Welk. What does he think he will be able to control when he's tapped into the ley line? I feel like there are just several pieces missing in Welk's plan or his mental state. Absolutely. Around the ley line. He is the definition of not all there. Oh, man. (laughs) This guy. 
All right. Well, that's actually all of our chapters. It is. Sounds good. Woohoo. So the next thing is the most valuable character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to go with Baby Chainsaw this time. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Did you not go with Chainsaw? <laughs> Son of a bitch. Who did you go with? Come on. I actually want to go with Will Patton. (laughs) For for his reading. Will Patton is not a character. Damn it. Okay. (laughs) If I can't have Foxway, you can't have have Will Patton. Too too meta. I was going to go with Neve. Because she's creepy AF. Absolutely. Hmm. <laughs> we might have to Rochambeau this one, but I want to lose. I want to lose, but I actually am like, Neve's pretty great in this chapter. She is. And so. Ready? Okay. All right. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> I won. I've never felt so shitty about winning in my life. <laughs> We can say his baby chainsaw. Uh, nope, it's okay. We'll go with Neve. <laughs> this is what happened when Noah won. I mean, I love Noah, of course. But oh, man. Baby chainsaw will have her day. She's got to. <laughs> you know what's funny is I thought you thought that I would go with baby chainsaw. <laughs> I, I kind of did think you would go with Baby Chainsaw yeah. to give her a second chance at getting her moment because she's pretty great in this. She is great in this chapter. All right. Well, Maggie Watch. I really don't have very much to say other than the most exciting news, which is that Maggie is hard at work and torturing me personally with hints and Pinterest boards <laughs> on the first book of the Dreamer trilogy. And I'm sure she's aiming to torture you me personally. Personally, <laughs> I am feeling targeted. I am being called out. This is the worst, Maggie. Come on. You are going to kill me before the end of this year if you keep posting stuff about the Dreamer trilogy. It's driving me nuts. Oh my gosh. <sighs> That's it. That's about all I have. <laughs> And then I wanted to give a supporter shout out. We mentioned them in episode five. I wanted to give an actual supporter shout out to RK Lovestroy on Twitter for retweeting and giving other people our mm. information and interacting with us. They actually just did a boost for us last night which that is, I responded to you, which, which is awesome. Which is awesome. And we actually they so did much. after I had already written this out. So thank you so much to mm. RK Lovestroy. We do appreciate everything that you've done. Absolutely. And the only other notes I had at the end is that the Raven King Opal POV short story special episode will likely be released on March 15th, but we will keep you guys informed. And much as I'd love to be able to do the whole thing two days after the release, I think we'll probably need more lead time than that. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe we'll do uh, it takes like a, week. a week. It takes at least a week yeah. to put together an episode. We'll keep you informed since the short story will be released at the end of February. The short story special episode will be sometime early to mid-March. So keep an eye out for that. Okay. 
And yeah, so that's it for this episode. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining rap. us. Our next episode will cover chapters 19 through 22 of The Raven Boys with a deep dive on geoglyphs. And geoglyphs are like the Uffington horse and the Nazca lines yeah. that are described in the books. And our recording schedule is several weeks ahead of release schedule. So again, follow us for announcements of what we'll be covering next. And mm. please do continue to send us thoughts and feelings and all of that kind Absolutely. of good stuff because they make our day. It's amazing. Right. We're so excited. So speaking of getting in touch with us, you can get in touch with us practically everywhere on social media at R-A-V-I-N-G-I-R-L-S. On Twitter at Raven Girls, on Tumblr at ravengirls.tumblr.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash ravengirls. And you can reach us directly at ravengirls at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And you can reach me at substanceparty.tumblr.com or via Gmail at substanceparty with all of the A's removed. S-U-B-S-T-N-C-E-P-R-T-Y at gmail.com. And if we have referenced a post or article in the podcast, we will do our very best to include source links to those in the show notes. The Raven Cycle and all affiliated properties are copyright Maggie Stiefvater and Scholastic Incorporated. So yeah, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. And until next time, whoop whoop Raven Girls! (laughs) Yay! I remember the time when my dad, like, and I was in my 20s, he's like, you know your mom was a witch, right? I looked at him, I'm like, yeah. (laughs) He's like, no, 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 like a real witch. And I'm like, yes. (laughs) Do you, what part of this face looks surprised? Seriously, dad. Uh, 